Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 7. Well, that's one way to spend a grand. Can't buy me love. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast. I'm Tom Panneries, and this time around, I thought I'd turn my attention to what has to be the prevailing theme of the month of February, which is, of course, love. But before I do that, I have an email. This one comes from Chris Keith. Uh, he writes, greetings, Tom. I apologize for the delay in writing as I listened to your It episode while striving to Oklahoma, or Oklahoma homa as I call it. Sorry, Sean Engel but have been delayed in emailing to comment on a thoroughly interesting episode. It was funny listening to you describe your Stephen King origin as it sounds like we have somewhat similar tracks with the writer. To a point, I'll explain. A little backstory. My dad is a huge King fan, and I picked up his copy of Dark Half when I was about 15 in 1990. He was halfway finished, and I made sure not to flip to his bookmark as I started reading it from the beginning when he set it down. I've always held a fondness for that book, well because it gave me something to discuss with my dad. It made me feel all grown up. He finished the book before me, and then he joined some Stephen King book club where you, got a, where you would get a new book in the mail frequently. His next book, Four Past Midnight. For some reason, he received two copies, so I snagged the second one and tore through the book at light speed. I was at medium interest level in King at that point. The next book, however, set my brain on fire. The Stand. Uh, the unabridged version, of course. Abridged books are just for the ladies. This book was and is amazing, and although I've only read it twice, I just absolutely loved it. After that book was completed in 1991, I was on a king quest for a while, reading Pet Cemetery, Christine, Salem's Lot, the Bachman books, even that steaming pile of poo knowing, known as the Running Man. Sorry, hated the characterization, but may, it may be because I really liked the movie at the time. Tommy Knockers and Misery, which, due to the flu, I was stuck at home and plowed through the book in a day. I still wish that they would have cut off his leg in the movie. Which brings us to It. My dad received his copy of It, and I was well into two other books at that time, but knew that it was next on tap. This was the winter of 1992. I finished what I was reading and checked with my dad. He never ended up picking It up for some reason before I grabbed it, but I was ready for the fight to get the book if need be. Okay, not much of a fight, more like a Jedi Jedi mind trick or two while I snagged the book from his nightstand. So I sat down to read. After the first 200 or so pages, I was enthralled, and then I turned the page, and the story was in a completely different chapter. I hoped that just one page was printed incorrectly. Not so much. It was as if pages were glued glued in from all over the book. A massive printing error. I couldn't make sense of it, obviously, and had to put it down. I kept saying that I would just run over to the local library and pick it up, or go to a bookstore and grab a new copy. Yeah, that was 20 years ago. One of these days, I've, I'll finally finish it. I certainly have the interest, not just the time to invest like I had when I was 17. I did see the film and, well, was underwhelmed. The first part was great, but like you said, part two is lacking. If they ever do make a theatrical version, I'm in. Thanks for the trip down memory lane for me. Another reminder that I need to read that book finally, and thank you again for an excellent podcast, Chris Keith. Thanks for the email, Chris. I have to say that it was one of the most fun pieces I've done because I hadn't read it in at least a couple of decades. And I remember not only being so happy that the book really had stood the test of time, but it actually was a little better than I remember. And I was glad to hear your Stephen King origin story. I wonder if the similarity isn't just between me and you. Maybe there are a lot of people in our generation who quote-unquote graduated to Stephen King at some point because our parents were reading his books. Uh, there really is something to be said about that, especially since we grew up at a time when the novels that were geared toward teenagers were pretty few and far between, and if they were available, they were either not that great or they were for girls. So, anyway, thanks again for the email. On uh, segueing out of the email section, back to what I talked briefly about at the top of the podcast, live. All right, I know Valentine's Day was like two weeks ago. And uh, I already did cover studs on that day, so if you go back to the blog, you can watch an entire episode of a 1990s Fox-produced television game show <laughs> named Studs with Mark DiCarlo. Uh, but I want to cover a movie that I've been had in mind since I started this blog, as well as this podcast, which is the extremely underrated and on some level epically awesome 1987 Patrick Dempsey romantic teen comedy Can't Buy Me Love. I made that sound way bigger than it actually is. Because after hearing that, you're either saying, that movie? Or, uh, what movie? If you're still listening, by the way. 
But I have a huge... I have been... I have been a huge teen movie fan for quite a long time. Uh, ever since around the time I was in the 8th or ninth grade and I caught movies like uh, Better Off Dead or The Breakfast Club on WPIX. I can't exactly remember what drew me to these movies, except that du- ju- during junior high and high school, I really didn't have much of a social life. So I basically spent most of my Friday and Saturday nights with a movie or two rented from the video store, many of which I would then dub because my parents had two VCRs. Uh, so as a result, I've probably seen just about every teen movie made from the time Halloween came out in 78 and American Pie came out in 99. I mean, I know that teen movie, the teen movie genre spans a greater period of time than that, but when I think of them, I tend to choose 99 as the end of that kind of my period with the teen movies because that's when I graduated college. And I guess that's kind of a benchmark in everyone's life in some way. Anyway, when you look at your teen movie genre, you can definitely rank the movies. Uh, which I actually did on an old site of mine a number of years ago uh, where I listed what I thought at the time were the top 100 teen movies of all time. Uh, I remember I had uh, The Breakfast Club and Say Anything at 1 and 2. I had movies like Heather's, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Halloween, Clueless, uh, Fast Times Ridgemont High, Scream, um, somewhere in the rest of the top 10. Uh, Pretty in Pink was in there. You know, these And those movies, especially the John Hughes flicks, which I love... And we'll definitely get around to talking about one day. Uh, they're in the top tier. They are the top tier of movies. They're the movies that inspired like the genre. Um, inspired knockoffs, inspired imitators, inspired movies that were actually, in some cases, even raised it up a, a level. Can't Buy Me Love is not one of those top tier movies. Um, I definitely placed it kind of in second or third, in that second or third tier, because... It's one of those movies that, at one point or another, just shows up on cable, and you just wind up getting, like, completely sucked into it. And you know the types of movies I'm talking about. Uh, You know, and most guys would be low to admit it, but, like, 10 Things I Hate About You, Bring It On, PCU. PCU used to be on Comedy Central all the freaking time and it, it just it, it sucked you in no matter where you went because that's the thing about like a movie like Can't Buy Me Love it's just on and you come across it and you're like oh you know th- we all have those movies for instance if I hit Carrie before Sissy Spacek loses her shit at the prom I'm in if I hit the Karate Kid at any point during the tournament I'm in because what happens is that, like with Can't Buy Me Love, or, or some of these other movies, you stop, you stop at it, you're flipping around, you start watching it, and before you know it, it's been 30 minutes. But the thing is, the movie's kind of entertaining. I mean, that's why you keep watching it. So what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about the film's background, my background with it, get into the plot itself. I probably could do a commentary. I've seen it that many times, but there are things that a podcaster asks of his audience. Watching an old Patrick Dempsey movie while listening to me ramble on about it is not one of them. Oh, you'll do it for a music video. We'll all do it for something like Batman or Superman. But P-Demps renting a girl? uh, It's probably too much to ask. At least seven episodes in, it's probably too much to ask. If this were episode 77... Before I get to the film, though, um, I have, I'd have i be remiss if I didn't talk about where the title comes from, and it's this classic Beatles tune. Can't buy me love, love. And I'll be 
satisfied Tell me that you want the kind of things The money just can't buy I don't care too much for money Money can't buy me love Can't Buy Me Love, the song, was written by Paul McCartney, uh, credited to Lennon McCartney, recorded by the Beatles in 1964 and released on March 16, 1964 in the United States and March 16th, sorry, March 20th, 1964 in the UK. It was also included on the album A Hard Day's Night. The song reached number one in the US and at one time held the distinction of having the biggest jump to number one as it went from 27 to number one on the Hot 100 uh, on April 4th, 1964. This is also significant because when it hit number one, the Beatles didn't just have the number one song on the Hot 100. They had all of the top five songs on the Hot 100, something that no other band has done. And in its second week at number one, the group had 14 songs on the Hot 100. Can't Buy Me Love spent five consecutive weeks at number one, and the only other Beatles song with longer staying power at number one, uh, the only other songs were I Want to Hold Your Hand and Hey Jude, the latter of which spent nine weeks at number one. It's not a hard song to interpret. McCartney's obviously saying that material things are not a way to a woman's heart, something that everyone who grew up in the 1980s knew from watching the video to Material Girl. Anyway, it's definitely catchy considering there have been a number of movies named after songs that were popular first. In fact, Girls Just Want to Have Fun had only come out a couple of years earlier. I'm quite frankly not surprised that someone decided that a Beatles song would make a good movie title. But funny enough, that wasn't the original title of the movie. According to an article in the Lehigh Valley Morning Call from August 9, 1987, which was a profile of director Steve Rash because at the time he lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania... The film was originally produced independently by Apollo Production and was called Boy Rents Girl. And when the movie was picked up by Touchstone, which was owned by Disney at the time, uh, the name didn't test well because it seemed sexist. Michael Eisner, who was the head of Disney at the time, was the one who suggested that the title be changed to Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, the article also mentions that Disney was reported to have paid Michael Jackson $100,000 to the rights for Can't Buy Me Love, uh, since if you know anything about Michael Jackson and the Beatles, you know that in 1985, he actually bought the rights to the entire Beatles catalog, uh, and he bought it out from under Paul McCartney, believe it or not. Uh, this made him much, much, much richer than he already was. Funny enough, the target audience, the song that wasn't that well recognized... Uh, in the article, Rash said that even though in 1987 you had the Beatles coming out on CD, you had the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's, uh, the kids didn't know that Can't Buy Me Love was a Beatles song. He said, surprisingly, in all of our f- informal research, kids have no idea that's a song, much less a Beatles song. It's amazing. Now, Rash was not a first-time director when he directed this. He, at that time, he was known mainly for the Buddy Holly story, which starred Gary Busey, Gary Busey as the uh, titular despect bespectacled rock and roller. Uh, looking at his IMDb profile, he would go on to direct the Kevin Bacon ensemble movie Queen's Logic, which I'm not that familiar with. The Pauly Shore film Son-in-Law, which I believe also has Lane Smith, then Michael Bailey just smiled, and then went on to direct at least a few of the direct-to-video American Pie and Bring It On sequels. Uh, the screenplay was written by Michael Swerdlick, who, according to the article, was originally from New Jersey and was a talent agent 
But he wrote the screenplay, and, and he got it optioned. Uh, the film was originally supposed to be set in New Jersey, but the production company decided to move things to Tucson, Arizona, because filming there was less expensive. This allowed Rash, who was a pilot, believe it or not, the chance to shoot at what had has to be one of the most famous settings in the movie, the Pima Air Museum and adjacent military aircraft graveyard. Rash seemed to have some hopes for the film, saying it involves what I consider to be the most important thing to kids, which is popularity and the social pressure of their peers. With our grown-ups' perspective, we can look back and say, well, that's not really that important after all. But if you remember, it was and is and I guess always will be to kids. You can tell them as much as you want, Aw, you won't even remember those people's names in 10 years. That doesn't help. It probably makes it worse. And he also believed the movie would make it because of how well it was cast, especially since most of the teenage actors were their own age. Talking about lead actress Amanda Peterson, who was 16 at the time it was filmed, Rash says, she's just got these moves that are so natural. And yet there's a certain awkwardness and the body language doesn't always match. There are little subtle things that go on with a teenager and the best actor in the world can't do that. Disney apparently had some hopes for the film, and, and for a movie made on a budget of about $3 million, it did, definitely did all right. You know, it raked in $31.6 million at the box office, which was a decent showing in 87, or at least a decent return on investment. Uh, it was the 39th highest grossing movie of the year, making slightly more than The Princess Bride, and slightly less than The Lost Boys. Uh, for the record, the top five movies of that year were in order, by the way. Three Men and a Baby at $167 million, Fatal Attraction with $156 million, Beverly Hills Cop 2 with $153 million, Good Morning Vietnam with $123 million, and Moonstruck with $80 million. Uh, the highest grossing teen-oriented film was A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which scared up $44 million. Yeah, I, I, I did that. But really, Can't Buy Me Love, a pretty successful movie, and I actually have a bit of history with it. Uh, I first saw it, I think it was either on VHS or it aired on TV, and I want to say it aired on, like, NBC for some reason uh, in 88 or 89. I think I might have watched it by accident, um, because I don't remember actually either A, seeking it out, or B, watching the whole thing. So I'm pretty sure I might have just come across it on TV. But for all I know, my dad had just randomly rented it because that's what my dad does. He just will pick anything up that looks good. I saw enough of it for it to leave a mark. Um, and I think part of it's because I recognized Patrick Dempsey because I had seen him in A Fighting Choice, which was a Disney Sunday movie uh, from a little while earlier where he played this guy with epilepsy uh, who underwent, like, radical neurosurgery in order to fix the epilepsy and I remember a little bit the movie but that like PDEMS had scenes like he'd have these epic grand mal seizures at the most inopportune time like in restaurants and stuff anyway um, I remember kind of liking Can't Buy Me Love or at least remembering enough of it to care about it for some reason this sticks out of my mind the first time I ever stopped into a blockbuster video which they didn't really have up on Long Island until I was like uh, like junior high or high school, or at least up on my part of Long Island. I should be more specific. I went to the same video store for years, and they opened a Blockbuster. I think I was in like high school around the time they opened a Blockbuster in, uh, out in Bayport when I was in Sable. But I was visiting my friend Chris down in Florida in the summer of 89, and uh, that was my first time in a Blockbuster. And uh, for some reason, I don't know why I remember that, but I do remember the fact that can't buy me love was playing in the store and i saw this one scene and um yeah so that that was just a random memory about that anyway um but beyond those two times there was one of those movies i you know i remember but forgot about until about maybe the late 90s early 2000s when um i was hanging out with my girlfriend at her apartment and we'd be flipping through the channels and like i said it was just like on and there was this streak of like two or three months where we'd be hanging out like a Thursday or a Friday night and flipping around, and it was on. TBS, usually, maybe like USA. But yeah, seriously, you turn on TBS, and there's Patrick Dempsey doing the African Annie Ritual. Um, in fact, I think I bought her a copy on VHS. Just kind of out of a little joke, because I was able to find it. And This is, before, this is right before either of us owned a DVD player. So in 2001... Um, I started writing reviews for a site called Bad Movie Night. 
which was a site dedication to, dedicated to the celebration of crappy movies. Um, it's still up, although I don't know if anybody's contributed to it in years. Anyway, um, the only thing notable out of my tenure there as a critic, and I'm sure I could write some more if I wanted, but there's my review of the pirate movie with Christy McNichol because that is actually quoted in the book The Official Razzie Movie Guide and I find that awesome. <laughs> I actually own a copy just because I'm in there. Anyway, so I'm writing for Bad Movie Night and this is the very first movie I ever reviewed. Um, you can access the review even though it's something like 12 years old but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read it so I can see what I thought of the film 12 years ago before we go into my rather detailed analysis today. So, Bad Movie Night, just to give you an idea of what they what they do, they rated their movies on a scale of 1 to 10 Mr. Beans, with a 10-bean movie being a horrible movie and a 1-bean movie being pretty good. I think this comes from the horrible, horrible Mr. Bean movie that came around in 99 or 2000. Anyway, I gave Can't Buy Me Love 7 Beans, which I think was a little unfair, but because my review isn't that harsh. But here it is. I'm a big fan of 1980s teen click movies, mainly because I believe they should be shown in high schools throughout the country. I mean, we could update health and social education curriculum, which right now is outdated 70s film strips, with movies like The Breakfast Club, Turning in Pink, and one of my favorite movies on the subject of popularity and dating, Can't Buy Me Love. Obvious jokes about how the movie's entire budget went to getting the rights to the Beatles song aside, the movie's plot is pretty simple. Cindy Mancini, Amanda Peterson, the beautiful blonde cheerleader, has a problem. She's ruined her mother's really expensive, albeit really tacky, suede outfit. The solution? Ronald Miller, Patrick Dempsey, who is so obsessed with popularity that he gives her the $1,000 she needs to buy a new suede outfit if she'll pretend to go out with him for a month. Seeing no other way out of her predicament, she accepts. And hijinks ensue. Okay, it's not that simple, but the movie is pretty predictable. Cindy's cold to Ronald in their deal at first, but then she really begins to like him. However, he goes ahead and quote unquote breaks up with her so he can go out so he can go after all her trashy friends while alienating all the geeks he used to go with. If you can't figure out the ending, insert spoiler here, it's pretty easy. Ronald gets found out, becomes even more of an outcast than he was, but ultimately gains respect and the girl. Can't Buy Me Love is both entertaining and educational. In fact, it's like a full day of high school in just 90 minutes. There's economics. The movie itself is a cost-benefit analysis of trying to buy popularity. Literary theory. It's dripping with irony. Cindy, the perfect cheerleader, is really a bad poetry-writing tortured soul, when she, and when she begins to like Ronald, he is too obsessed with his new popularity to notice, just like she never noticed him. History. The pastel colors and synth-pop music are a great window into the late 1980s. And when was the last time you saw a Billy Idol record being played at a party? Culture. Ronald teaches everyone the African entity ritual. And Seth Green. Okay, that's not educational, but it's worth the rental price. Ultimately, it teaches us that it's okay to be an outcast because everyone in his own way is not only an outcast, but is also, dare I say it, human. So that's me 12 years ago, and when I get back... I'll give a full plot recap and analysis of Can't Buy Me Love. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be. It's still going up. 325 manga chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. I lied when I said you could go. At least partially lied. For I will let you go to another dimension. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.lipson.com. We're back. Can't Buy Me Love, as I mentioned, premiered August 14th, 1987, and it stars Patrick Dempsey, who after this making, making this movie also made two 1980s teen flicks, the sex comedy Loverboy and the action flick Mobsters. He also worked steadily throughout the 1990s, appearing in movies such as With Honors, which is another one of from my formative years that I'm going to have, that is going to get another look, especially since I'm pretty sure there's a girl involved in the origin story for that movie. 
Um, anyway, he also made. He was also an outbreak. Uh, he did television movie versions of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Crime and Punishment. And of course, most audiences, especially female audiences from the last decade or so, know him as Dr. Derek Shepard, a.k.a. Dr. McDreamy on the medical drama Grey's Anatomy, a show that I watched for a few seasons before it got completely ridiculous. But he's one of those actors who you're kind of glad to see get steady work because he's pretty talented. I mean, I'd venture to say that Looking at his performance in this and other stuff he did between the mid-80s and mid-90s, he would have actually made a pretty good Dick Grayson. Anyway, that's another podcast entirely. Uh, playing the female lead is the is Amanda Peterson, an actress who is basically the female My- Michael Scheffling. And if you do not get that reference, I will explain. Uh, Michael Scheffling is the actor who played Jake Ryan, the guy who Molly Ringwald and is madly in love with and ends up with at the end of uh, John Hughes's classic 16 Candles. Uh, he made that movie, he had a couple of roles in some other movies during the 80s, but then he completely dropped off the face of the earth. I mean, to the point where Michael Scheffling is the is the epitome of one of those whatever happened to stories. Uh, Amanda Peterson, she's the same thing, just a girl. Uh, after Can't Buy Me Love, she appeared in the Kirk Cameron flick Listen to Me, which I'm, I have heard is a redonkulous me- message movie, and I really should try to dig up at some point, because I've never seen it, uh, and, and I just, out of morbid curiosity. Uh, she also did a couple of TV movies here and there, but in all honesty, by the 1990s, uh, was more or less completely gone. I think a number of year ago, years ago, uh, ESPN's Bill Simmons, the sports guy, kind of meditated on her whereabouts, calling her the prime example of a hot actress who has one role and then is never heard from again. Uh, so those are your two main players, and I'll give you a little background on other actors and actresses in the film as I go through the plot. We start out, of course, with the popular theme song, but the way the film uses it is a little odd because they do this little simp-pop overture before we hear the first words out of the Beatles' mouths, and when the band sings Can't Buy Me Love for the first time, the words Can't Buy Me Love come on the screen. I think they did this because they had to do like a touchdown touchdown pictures presents thing before doing the title. Anyway, we start out by seeing Dempsey as Ronald Miller riding his lawnmower around the property of Peterson's character Cindy Mancini. We're in Tucson, which would become a setting uh, for the 1990 Christian Slater film Pump Up the Volume, as well as the reunion in Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, another movie uh, that I just inexplicably love. So, Ronald's a geek, a complete geek, and we can tell that by the fact that he's, well, he's riding a lawnmower wearing glasses, and he's got this navy shirt with the Milky Way galaxy on it, and there's a label on the shirt, and it's pointing to part of the Milky Way, it says, you are here. I had this shirt when I was a kid. We bought it out of, like, Signals or Wireless, like one of those catalogs. Um, I also had this really cool shirt that said, it was green, and it said, stop plate tectonics, because... You know, you need to be dedicated to a cause. Uh, this is all exposition during the credits as we see that Cindy is the captain of the cheerleaders. She's over ultra popular. She completely ignores Ronald. She doesn't even know his name. She calls him Donald. Uh, Cindy has just come back from shopping and for school because school's about to start. Her mother gives her griefs about spending too much money and not being responsible, blah, blah, blah. When Ronald packs up his lawnmower and goes home, Cindy and her friends hang out in her room, which anyone who has seen this movie knows because she has some huge decal of the world or of the word outrageous on the wall next to her bed. Now, I've always wondered if that was really the type of crap that teenage girls would put on their walls in the late 1980s, because by the time I managed to get into a teenage girl's room when I was in high school, I remember seeing, like, Pearl Jam posters and stuff kind of mixed in with, like, random shit from when they were kids and they hadn't taken down or throw away with. Kind of the same way that, like, I had, like, a bunch of comic book posters and, like, stuff from, like, four or five years earlier that I just was too lazy to actually take off my wall. Anyway, Cindy has a boyfriend, Bobby. He was the captain of the football team. He's now playing college ball ball at Iowa. She misses him. There's no indication that he even remembers that she exists. Uh, And this kind of definitely makes her feel like crap. 
But she loves the guy because she has a life-size photo on of him on the back of her door, which must have cost a serious amount of money back in 1987. The girls go to cheerleading practice, and there's a lot of shaking and jiggling. But the reason I'm pointing out the cheerleading practice is because uh, there are two interesting things about the scene from the beginning of the movie. First, Paula Abdul did the choreography. This is right around the time that Paula was... I think she was still Janet Jackson's choreographer... Um, and it was a couple of years before Forever Your Girl, so she was still very much involved in the dance side of the music, choreography side of the music industry. Second, if you look way in the background of the cheerleading practice scene uh, beyond the football field, you will see a picket line. These are Screen Actors Guild actors protesting the fact that the producers and director put out a casting call for local teens to play extras for scenes at the high school and were using non-union labor in their production. Uh, Ronald, during this whole time, is hanging out by the bleachers, staring at Cindy, staring at the popular kids. Uh, And his friend Kenneth pulls up next to him. Kenneth is played by Courtney Gaines, who is one of those actors who does pop up and stuff every once in a while. The only thing of note I remember him in, to be honest, is hard bodies. Don't ask. Uh, But Ronald starts talking about the cool kids and how it would be pretty awesome to be part of that crowd. So we're starting off with this very stark cool kids nerds dichotomy uh which works for a movie like this but in all honesty i don't remember it making that much of a difference beyond maybe the ninth grade tenth grade Uh, i mean it's not like there weren't clicks in my high school but i have to say it was definitely near the bottom rung and but i don't remember longing for acceptance from a bunch of douchebag football players when i was a senior i don't know Within a few minutes, we meet more of the cast, which are mostly relatively unknowns. Uh, one of the cheerleader girls will show up in Teen Witch a couple of years later. Another very bit player is Amy Dolans, who is the daughter of Monkey Mickey Dolans, and she would actually be the lead, the female lead in the in the high in the movie that's I think is highly underrated. Uh, she's out of control. Where Tony Danza plays her father, and Wallace Shawn plays this radio therapist who's Tony Danza's like taking the guy's advice. It, it's 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 one of those movies that's like, again, you don't know why you like it, but you do. <laughs> uh, the only other actors of note in Can't Buy Me Love, by the way, are Dennis Dugan, who plays Ronald's father. Uh, he's actually notable because he went on to direct both Happy Gilmore and Beverly Hills Ninja. Uh, and Seth Green, who plays Chucky Miller, Ronald's annoying, smart-ass younger brother. Uh, I'll note here that when this was released, Green was 13 years old, so he was either 12 or 13 when the movie was filmed. Uh, He'd show up a couple of years later with an extremely bit part and pump up the volume, and would of course then play a young Richie Tozer in It, if you listen to uh, the the piece that Chris Keith was talking about earlier in the show. And then uh, he would really start to make a name for himself in the teen comedies of the late 90s, especially one of my favorite films of that era, Can't Hardly Wait. Green's kind of the connection between the 80s movies and the 90s movies when you kind of think about it. Oh, I should also mention that Green's an airborne, which I can't even get on DVD at this point. I had to watch the whole thing on YouTube. There's a post I wrote about it, like, right around the time of my wife's birthday, which is July 8th of either last year or the year before. Um, Yeah, airborne. All right. Anyway, uh, Green and Amy Heckerling. Amy Heckerling's the other connection between the 80s and 90s because she directed Fast Time and Mount High and she directed uh, Clueless. Chucky, uh, little brother, has a decent role in the film as a supporting character. At least he helps provide some good comedy. That's about it for our exposition, though. And it's just in time because we, by the time we meet all the characters, we're watching Cindy, Cindy secretly borrow her mother's suede outfit, which has this fringe on it, and it's so 80s. It's white suede with fringe. I, I can't even begin to explain how 80s this is. And then she goes to this party where everybody's drinking, whatever, and one of the douchebag football players, like, not just spills red wine, but, like, flings red wine over it, and he's like, sorry, uh, use some club soda, that'll get it out. Like, what the hell is your problem? Eh, you know, because guys like that are really helpful. She flips because she's not supposed to be wearing it. She obviously can't get the stain out. And she kind of hides the fact, you know, her mom doesn't know she took it. So she goes to the store at the mall where she got, where her mom obviously bought her or sells it. She tries to bargain with the guy to like say, hey, you know, I mean, to the point where she's like, you know, I'll, I'll, 
I'll work here and work off the money. Please let me get this now. You know, I'll owe you. And the owner's the stuck-up snob who isn't having it. Um, and while she's pleading her case, who happens to spot her but Ronald? Ronald is across the mall at another store. He's pricing telescopes because he saved up enough money to buy a brand new telescope. So he's looking through a telescope, testing one out, and he sees her, and he sees that she's in trouble, and he runs over to the store, and he, he knocks on the door, and he comes and sees her. He makes it an offer, and he says he will give her $1,000, which is the cost of this tacky suede outfit, if she'll pretend to go out with him for a month. She initially balks, but when Ronald starts to rescind the offer, Cindy realizes she's kind of between a rock and a hard place, and she accepts. And at this point, we're fully in Act 1. I know most movies have a three-act structure, but Can't Buy Me Love is one of those flicks where, well, the acts are really delineated. You can tell where one end and another begins. And here, if I were teaching this in English class, is where we would have our complication and the start of a rising action. Cindy's gone to the party, and by the way, this... The look of this movie screams 1980s. I know it's 1987, so it would, but there are points when I look at the hair, the makeup, the fashion, even the interior decorating of the film, and it seems like a time capsule. Uh, but anyway, Cindy's gone to the party. She's in the outfit. Ronald, who has spent much of his part of the exposition pining for popularity, has figured out a way in and offers to rent her. Cindy and Ronald negotiate terms, and on the morning of the first day of school, she, quote-unquote, creates him. She throws some mousse in his hair, she tears the sleeves off his shirt, and she says, and then she walks the cool hallway with him. Uh, I found this hilarious on some level, because much like the whole thing about clicks I was talking about a little while ago, I don't remember there being a cool hallway in my school. I remember a small bridge next to the high school that was just off school grounds, but that's because that's where the burnouts would smoke up before school without getting in too much trouble anyway if you look at this for a moment before we go on to the rest of the plot you see that this movie kind of has similar elements to what heathers would satirize a couple of years later and think about it ronald is winona Ryder's character veronica the former nerd who is now part of the popular clique kenneth will wind up being betty finn Cindy is Heather Chandler because she's the perfect queen bee to the point where she's the only blonde and her other two friends, Patty and Barbara, are second-rate trashy brunettes. Yeah, I realize that it's Heather McNamara and not Heather Chandler who's the cheerleader. And now I'm thinking of that line that the principal says where, like, you know, Heather Chandler's just taking a, 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 a nosedive into a coffee table and he's like, was this the cheerleader? No, that was Heather McNamara. Damn, I would have gone half a day for a cheerleader. God, I fucking love Heather's. <laughs> anyway, Heather Chandler. Heather Chandler is perfection. When Heather Duke takes her place, she isn't as good. Oh, she winds up having power, but she doesn't have the finesse that Heather Chandler does. Cindy is a character that we will see and be imbued with depth in the way that none of the other girls that Ronald will score with, including Patty and Barbara, do. Plus, she's the only blonde he's involved with which I found peculiar. Either they cast Peterson to like the fact that her blonde hair made her stand out from the pack, or they're really going for some sort of symbolism where her blondness is, hi- is lightness against the brunette of evil that are her popular friends. I think I'm going to go with the casting about the fact that she just looked good. Anyway. Ronald isn't accepted at first, of course. Uh, the jocks and cheerleaders have a conference about this. You're like, what the hell is going on? They do it during home economics. And, and not to insult home economics or family and consumer science teachers out there, but that is so the class of the jocks and cheerleaders would take in high school. Cindy, anyway, Cindy, Cindy does her best to deflect criticism, even though one of the jocks does bring up a good point about Bobby, a name that will come up at least a few times over the course of the first half of the movie in that pay attention, this will be important sort of way. But it's not really a deep conversation, and we get to what is possibly one of the dumbest rankouts in movie history. So Cindy and Ronald continued to date. Chucky, who's perplexed by all of this in the same way that Maddie Corman's younger sister character was perplexed in Some Kind of Wonderful, starts stowing away on the dates to see what's really going on. Unfortunately for him, Ronald... I think Ronald realizes what he's doing, and at least two occasions, he gets this jock named Big John to let loose one of his famous rancid farts right in Chucky's face. Yes, I know, it's a fart joke, but seeing Seth Green spill out of a station wagon going, Err! Err! It just seriously gets me every time. Ronald's gamble, by the way, it starts to pay off. 
He finds acceptance with this crowd, and as the month progresses, he is hanging out with them more and more, much to Kenneth's chagrin, as he and the rest of the Geek Squad are feeling more and more alienated because Ronald doesn't show up for Friday Night Poker games anymore, and he never seems to have any time for them. Ronald does not seem to notice. The final day for Ronald and Cindy before they will, quote, break up is more like an actual date than anything else we've seen. Up until that point, <clears throat> they've gone to parties, they've hung out with their friends in order to be seen so he could make his way into the crowd. But as they've dated, they've gotten to know one another uh, very well. And we've seen this, despite his obsession with his popularity, Ronald, deep down, is a nice guy. If he's not a little misguided. And Cindy, she's a lot more than an airhead cheerleader. In fact, she shares something with Ronald that she hasn't shared with anyone, a book of poetry that she literally keeps hidden on a shelf in, in her room. Like behind books and stuff. Ronald takes them to an airplane graveyard, which is the 309th Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group, located near Davis Monthan Air Force Base and the Pima Air and Space Museum just outside of Tucson. Uh, actually, an old friend of my wife's who was from the area has been there. I remember her saying that it's just as impressive as it seems in the movie. Uh, it's one of those scenes you remember if you do see this as a kid, because I always thought that was cool. I'm like, I want to go there and look at all these old planes and stuff. I, I, I mean, any any kid, any boy, uh, when you go to Washington D.C., probably is going to love one of two museums. Maybe the American History Museum, especially the pop culture exhibit, but definitely the National Air and Space Museum. And I, I honestly, I, I live like two hours away from the Annex in Dulles where they have the space shuttle, and I keep meaning to go. I'm going to take my son there. We're going to see the space shuttle because Daddy wants to see the space shuttle. Anyway, they go. They go to the graveyard. They go to the plane graveyard. They look around. They have some serious shared moments. They go through Ronald's telescope. They, sorry, they look through Ronald's ter- telescope at the moon before returning to Cindy's driveway. They be, they be, then begin to talk, and it's pretty obvious that she's falling for him. But Ronald is completely oblivious to this, because when he starts to hint around at actually starting a relationship, he doesn't get it. He begins talking about their fake breakup. Cindy is obviously hurt by this, and it seems that Ronald was only using her and didn't seem to care about her, or at least he cares more about his popularity. So she just tells him they'll stage a fight. And that's what they do. They have this argument. Hi. Hi. Um, I did a little thinking about last night, mm-hmm. and I think that now is the time that we had our little talk. No what? Us. You, you know me. Okay. Great. Well, um, I did a little thinking, too. No, actually, I did quite a bit of thinking, and I decided that you're breaking me. What? Broke. Bankrupt. Chapter 11? What are you talking about? This. I'm dry. Hey, I can't keep up with you. I'm not a bank. 11. Would you stop it, please? This isn't dignified. Dignified? For one month, you draped all over me like a cheap fucking suit. Now I'm not dignified? This is not necessary. Would you show some maturity? Like your precious Bobby? Yeah. 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 Well, if I was as mature as him, I probably wouldn't have called you either. I'm tired of you comparing me to Bobby. And in fact, I'm tired of you. Period. <laughs> Poor Cindy. It's awful the way Ronnie annihilated her. It completely works. Although Cindy and Ronald talk at her house in private and she tries to let him know how fake popularity really is and that he should just be himself. And this is the end of Act 1. So does Ronald be himself? Uh, By the way, he shows up for school the next day with his hair slicked back, sunglasses on, wearing a madras jacket and high-fiving every douchemobile in the cool hallway. I'm going to say no. 
from this point on, Ronald isn't Ronald anymore. He's Ronnie. And he makes his way through every one of Cindy's trashy friends and becomes an extreme douche nozzle. This serves to further alienate him from Kenneth and the rest of the geeks. It also causes a rift between him and Cindy because he keeps up the illusion that he dumped her when she makes an effort to actually get close to him. Now, during the second act, there are three important scenes we're taking a look at. The first is the school dance scene. Patty invites Ronald to a dance, and Ronald panics a little bit because he can't dance for shit. So after waking up late one morning, he rushes into the kitchen where Chucky is watching pro wrestling, as you do when you're 12 years old, and Ronald begs him for the remote to the television. He then has to threaten him with violence, and then Chucky changes channels. Ooh, spotlight dance. There's a couple of dance people dancing around. Ronald starts practicing the dance as they're doing it. And then he leaves before, like, right as the dance is over. And uh, Chucky walks back into the room, and this African-American guy comes on and says that these two students have just demonstrated the African and eater ritual on African Cultural Hour. <laughs> so Ronald, <laughs> and, and his reaction is awesome. Uh, Ronald takes his knowledge of the African anterior ritual to the dance, proceeds to show it to the popular crowd. And the sheeple that they are, they all start doing it, and as the entire dance floor follows suit, Kenneth and the geeks, who have been relegated to sitting on the bleachers, recognize that it's the African anteater ritual. (laughs) By the way, in this scene, there is a line where a girl looks at Ronald dancing and says, oh, he must be in special ed, which seriously is the type of line you could only get away with before the 90s. I mean, try putting that line today, and you have such an outcry in the press. I mean, I mean, it's kind of the same way. Like, I don't think Long Duck Dong from Sixteen Candles would work in a movie if it were made today. Um, so Ronald and Patty go to Inspiration Point and make out, and she takes him to second base, showing him one boob, and then telling him, and I quote, "I happen to know that there's only one titty just as pretty as she reveals the other one, saying they're a set." Now, this is a PG-13 release bu- movie released by Disney, so whether or not those titties are pretty is up to your imagination. But good God, that's a horrible line. It's probably the type of thing that I would have written when I was 13 or 14 and had no perspective on what it was like what it was like to make out with a girl in a car. Our second important scene in the Ronald's a popularity monster portion of the movie comes on Halloween, when the douchebag jocks go and egg a house, the pièce de résistance of which is a huge bag of dog shit that they throw at the house's front door. They've been bombing this house for years, and since they are now seniors, this is the last time they do it. It's the end of an era. And guess whose house it is? That's right, it's Kenneth's. Ronnie is take given the task of doggy do. Kenneth actually catches him in the act of escape after he's thrown the bag, but he lets him go when Kenneth shockingly realizes that his best friend is the one who just vandalized his house. Needless to say, Kenneth spends the rest of the next couple of months, and, well, most of the rest of the movie, not talking to Ronald. And we also see at this time that Ronnie is totally an asshole to Cindy. So he's alienated the two people who actually were true friends at this point. And that brings us to the third important part of Act 2 and the climax of this particular portion of the movie, the New Year's Eve party. Now... It's important to remember, because we're reminded of it at least a few times, that Bobby hasn't called Cindy for a while. She's kind of gotten the feeling that he's forgotten about her. In fact, Cindy goes on dates with a few other guys, especially this one asswipe who... I think she's doing it mostly to make Ronald jealous. It doesn't really work anyway. She goes stag to the New Year's Eve party. She gets ragingly drunk on just straight vodka, while Ronald brings a girl named Iris, who Cindy tells him has given her more rides than Greyhound and proceeds to recite one of Cindy's secret poems to her in the midst of trying to get her to fuck him on a toilet. Cindy, by the way, overhears this and is shattered, and it's at this point when Bobby shows up at the party, all, Big man on campus is back! Hail the conquering hero! I'm wearing my Iowa jacket! The football guys welcome him with open arms, and he wonders what the hell Ronald Miller is doing at this party, and they tell him that, oh, he's a legend now, and then they tell him that he was dating Cindy. This pisses Bobby off, and when he sees Cindy, drags into another room. They have a knockdown dragout fight that spills out into the main room. She tells him that he paid her to pretend they were dating, and we get this horribly overdubbed, and that makes you a prostitute! And he storms out. So then, she chucks her drink at the record player, silencing Dancing With Myself by Billy Idol, which is one of my favorite Billy Idol songs, by the way. 
and she tells the entire party what Ronald did. Ronald is asked to leave, and then seeing uh, that he's also not welcome at the nerd parties, he cries himself in sleep in the shed next to his lawnmower. Act 3 begins with Ronnie trying to reenact the beginning of Act 2, but his slicked-back high-fives are completely ignored by everyone in the cool hallway. Sidney watches this all go down from afar, and when he goes to lunch, he's further humiliated by the fact that nobody will sit with him. The jocks throw some sort of brownie grenade at him, which they all, like, seriously high-five, because, you know, that is the stupid type of shit football players would think was awesome. Anyway, then a fat girl walks up and says... Didn't you take economics? You could add me for $49.95. Ronald then tries to reconcile with Kenneth and Cindy. With Kenneth, he goes to see him in an arcade where our geek friend is playing Sega's Hang On. But Kenneth ignores Ronald until he can't take it anymore, grabs him, throws him up against another video game machine, and yells, You shit on my house! This is the scene, by the way, that I saw when I happened to be in that Blockbuster video back in, like, 89. Uh, Kenneth turns around after throwing Ronald up against the video game machine, turns back to hang on, and repeats the You shit on my house line as Ronald walks out. Um... He doesn't have much more success with Cindy either. First, he follows her into the women's bathroom at school, and he gives his grand speech about how he was wrong and how he feels about her. He thinks, you know, like she's in a stall listening. And, but, you know, but the thing is, she's sitting in a stall. She has her feet up on the toilet. Um, So try to hide that she's in there, and the feet he spots and talks to is a teacher who winds up giving him a month's attention. At one point, Chucky approaches Cindy at the makeup counter at the mall, and he gets a puff of powder in his face for his troubles. Um, The best part about that scene is uh, the fact that he's wearing a huge T-shirt with the phrase, Why Be Normal, on it. And, I don't know, I like the shirt. Uh, Ronald's final effort to win back Cindy comes after calling her several times and being told that she's washing her hair, even out of the country, and Cindy's mom doesn't get what happened either, because at one point she he doesn't call Cindy's private line. He calls the, the regular house line, and he says that his name is Donald. And she's like, wait, I know this is Ronald. And, and then she's like, I don't get it. He was a geek. Now he's popular. And she, she's just like, I, I can't explain it, Mom. It, that's just the way it happened. So his last-ditch effort to get Cindy to actually talk to him is that Ronald shows up on her front lawn at 6 o'clock in the morning riding his lawnmower and making a hell of a ton of noise. She she comes out and yells at him, and he just pours it out at her because he finally has a moment to talk to her. No, it's not as finesse as Lloyd Dobler holding up that boombox and playing Peter Gabriel, but in some way it's just as effective. Well, kind of, sort of, anyway, because while, yes, he does get Cindy to listen to him, she tells him that if he calls her, well, she'll be out of the country. 
so he leaves dismayed. But since this movie has a happy ending and our third act needs a true climax, we get it in the cafeteria one day in the spring. And we know it's spring, by the way, because now the jocks are playing baseball and not football. Kenneth is giving Patty help with her math homework, and the jocks think he is trying to pull, and I quote, a Ronald McDonald Miller scam on them, which I seriously think whatever jock jock said that thought it was so witty. One of them, Quint, comes over to the table, starts to rough Kenneth up. Seeing this, Ronald jumps in and gives gives this epic speech about popularity. And what do we get as a result? A slow clap. Yes, a slow clap in the outdoor cafeteria, and the score is worthy of the Smallville portion of Superman the movie. Dude, what do you think you're doing over here, Twim? I was helping him with some math. No, bullshit. You're trying to pull a Ronald Miller scale. Oh, what? You better get back to your own side, or I'm going to send you back to Geekville in a milk cart. Did you guys do something? Return of the living bread. Why don't you lay off? Why don't you go back where you belong, Jose? Take your hands off Kenneth. I'll break your arm. Your pitching arm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, don't make me laugh, lawn boy. Let go. No! You broke your arm once before, remember? You fell out of our treehouse. Kenneth picked you up. And we carried you 12 blocks to the hospital. Yeah, you cried all the way. We were all friends then, remember? And now you want to end his life? Because he's talking to Patty on your side of the cafeteria. Oh, man, it's stupid. I know, because that's where I wanted to be. On your side. With your crowd. But I messed up. See, I tried to buy my way in. But Kenneth, he's not trying to buy anybody. He's just trying to make friends, being himself. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. more or less over for except for one thing by the way Cindy and Ronald in the last scene Ronald mows Cindy's lawn wearing his cowboy hat not because he's trying to drive her nuts but because he's actually been hired to do so and he's wearing his you are here t-shirt the same thing he was wearing at the very beginning of the movie Cindy pays him and then she drives off toward wherever probably in the mall with her friends he looks at her longingly as she pulls away And then he starts to head home. Cindy's car stops. She gets out. She starts running toward him, screaming, Donald! He stops. She climbs in the back of the lawnmower, and they begin to negotiate again. But this time, he asks her to the prom. She says yes, and she tells him to kiss her. And they ride off into the sunset on his lawnmower. This scene, by the way, would be referenced in conjunction with the Lloyd Dobler scene at the very end of Easy A. Uh, a movie which, by the way, I really liked. Uh, it's really, really worth worth wor- seeing. It's very funny. Now, here's where I'd like to introduce what is one of my favorite books on the topic of movies, uh, and it's specifically about teen movies. It's called Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies. It was written by Jonathan Bernstein. It came out in 1997 or so, 96, 97. I remember that I picked it up at a Borders on a whim because I just have this habit of whenever I'm in a bookstore like a Barnes & Noble or a Borders, I go straight to either the graphic novel section, for obvious reasons, or like the f- pop culture stuff, the film, the television, sometimes the music, depends on what mood I'm in for. And this book, although I used to see it all the time, and I finally got my hands on some money, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to get this book. Uh, I, I want to say it's out of print. It may you may be able to find it. I'm sure you can find something on Amazon. It really is, if you're a fan of teen movies of the '80s and up until about 1995, 
it's really worth picking up because he gives a pretty thorough look at just about every single movie made between Porky's and Halloween and like Clueless. And uh, he gives Can't Buy Me Love a couple of pages. And uh, when he gets to the end of, of the movie, you know, he gives, he gives you a quick synopsis and he goes through his review. When he gets to the end of the movie, the last paragraph, he says, You'd have to be a fucking idiot to find anything remotely profound in Can't Buy Me Love. And luckily, I am. With almost every conceivable thing going at against it, its unsavory premise, however dorky Ronald then, he's still making another human being his paid companion. Its questionable performances, Patrick Dempsey had a marked propensity to act like he was in a musical, and the fact that half the budget went to securing the rights to the Beatles' title tune. The film touches on some truths about the iniquities of the schoolyard caste system and the desperation growing inside of some of the dispossessed. Something about the film always catches me unawares and has me welling up. Maybe it's because I always thought that the Molly Ringwald character should have ended up with Anthony Michael Hall rather than Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club. And in this movie, she does. I don't know. I kind of have some of those similar feelings to that. Um, I I really like uh, what he says there. And I know that in my bad movie night review that I read toward the beginning of the episode here, I I was quite snarky. Uh, in watching the movie again for this podcast, and I've, and I've watched this movie many, many times over the last 10 years, it is one of my go-to movies on a day off when I just need to put it on for a noise. Don't ask me why. I just it, It's just one of those movies you can just watch. And I watched it again for the podcast, and this time I sat down and took notes, and I was like, you know, I really like this. I mean, I, yeah, it passes that, like I said, it passes that personal test for a good watchable movie that I can have it on for noise and ignore parts of it when need be. But, I mean, it's not a great movie. The plot is something out of a Saved by the Bell episode. I'm pretty sure that anyone over the age of 16 would have had a hard time believing that anything like this could actually happen. But then again, this is a PG-13 movie. So if you're around the ages of 13, 14, 15, this may actually resonate. Maybe not 16 or 17, but definitely your early teen years. I'll go back to what the director said in his interview that I quoted way back at the beginning of the episode. When you're that age, you actually do care about this stuff. I remember that, yes, there was a time probably around, I don't know, 10th or 11th grade where I, well, I didn't so much as find my niche when it came to popularity as I accepted my fate. But I stopped really giving so much of a crap about who was going out with whom. Unless it involves someone I made a shot at, which nine times out of ten I didn't. But before I accepted my fate, mostly through junior high school, it was a serious source of stress for me that I wasn't as accepted as I wanted to be. Not that I needed to be the big man on campus or anything, but there was a time when I wasn't so proud to be constantly called a geek there wasn't that sort of nerd pride that we kind of all have now when we're all kind of approaching middle age and, and the geekier kids that I teach at high school, you know, do. So a movie about popularity, people's perception of popularity, definitely appealed to me, especially one that is clearly out of, you know, like one nerd's warped perception of what popularity seems to be. If this were mostly told from Cindy's point of view... I'm pretty sure it would have had a different narrative. But Ronald is so obsessed with being popular, we kind of see that there's a bit of fantasy involved. That he's showing us what he thinks all these people are like, or at least how they look to them. But whereas he's looking at it all through rose-colored glasses, we're looking at it through a lens of, why the hell would you want to be friends with these people? Plus, Dempsey and Peterson are very good in the film, despite what Bernstein says in the book about Dempsey. He does overdo it a little bit. They both give their characters enough depth that we find ourselves caring about them. Yeah, Dempsey overdoes it, and he could be a little more subtle, but you're hoping that Ronald comes to his senses and realizes what he's actually got, even when he's being a total douche. Yes, the cheerleader who's actually deep, seems a little trite. But Peterson pulls that off and actually makes Cindy attractive the same way that Kim Walker makes Heather Chandler an awesomely likable bitch. And even though Seth Green is a stereotypical annoying younger brother, he's genuinely funny. In all honesty, Can't Buy Me Love 
winds up being one of those movies that reminds me why I like to watch movies. Because it's entertaining. It's not a film that you watch for artistic quality, even though I have plenty of those and I enjoy watching those. I just It's almost like I watch, like watching this movie in spite of its flaws. And while I'm sure you won't exactly go out and rent it right now, 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 I recommend sticking with it if you do come across it while you're flipping through the channels on cable one night. Because if you do want to check it out, I honestly think you'll be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Next time, I don't know. Do you think I plan these things in advance? Thank you for listening to me ramble on about a Patrick Dempsey movie from 87. I hope you all had a great February. Onward into spring. And take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Just can't buy I don't care too much for money Money can buy me love Buy me love Love Buy me love Then that makes you a prostitute